you know that if you are a red-haired person, that you are in the minority, and even more so as the generations come. Those who study genetics and the progress among people are, are seeing that the red hair population is dropping considerably, even in Ireland, with the intermarriages that are occurring and the globalization of this world is becoming more one. Uh, the people are starting to revert back, I think, to what the original color of the humans would have been, and that is a brown. So fair-skinned, red-haired folks, uh, in a few generations, they may not be here. So if you see some around you, enjoy them. Just look at them. Think, wow. A few generations, they may not be here, that type of uh, that race. It's, it's fascinating to see how a whole uh, segment of the population can just disappear, uh, and, and whether through intermarriage and other uh, ways. Uh, right now, uh, we're the Scott Scott crew of my grandfather's family. My, my son, Evan, is the only Scott uh, around of all the boys. He's the only one that had a boy. I'm the only one that had a boy. And, and so I'm thinking, you know, if, if he doesn't make it, then that's it. Uh, that's, that's it for the Scott crew. And, and so, you know, I, you have these thoughts from time to time of, of when a whole group just disappears. Well, in chapter 36, we're going to focus on a group of people that in all practical purposes just disappear from the face of the earth. Why that happened. In Genesis 36, uh, I'll let you turn to it. You'll find that it's, a, it's probably a passage you've not read in depth. In depth. Chances are, in fact, I'd say 99.9% of you probably read the first few lines, skimmed real fast and read the last few lines when you came to this chapter. And as you read this, you'll see. Oh, yeah, <laughs> this is one of those chapters. Uh, and so it can be interesting uh, when you have to preach, <laughs> and you're preaching verse by verse, and you come upon a chapter like this, like, oh, my. I mean, you read this, and, and the question comes to your mind is, uh, why? Why? No, not just why did I read this, but why was it written? Why was it recorded? And you think about passages like you know, 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of of God is proper for doctrine, reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished for all good works. And I, and I read this, I'm thinking, okay, where is the instruction and righteousness in this chapter? Where is that proper for doctrine? How am I better equipped by reading this? And this is a valid question because it's hard to understand. And so uh, what I hope to do is not read this line by line, all right? But I will warn you, it's going to be a little bit more academic uh, than maybe what you used to. Uh, this is going to be more of a classroom setting. I encourage you to take your notes, pens, uh, and start writing just anything to help you stay engaged uh, in what we're going to be talking about. And if I see you falling asleep, I will ask that we stand up and read this verse by verse. Don't make me do that because I don't want to do that. Uh, it's hard to read. Uh, these are, are fascinating names, interesting names. Um, I mean, where else do you find another Ohibama uh, and, uh, you know, B-Dad, son of He-Dad? And, uh, you know, these names have been just kind of going through my brain all week and been driving my wife nuts. Every once in a while, I'll just come out with a name uh, that I've been reading this week. And she's like, what? You know, I was like, you've got to read 36 to understand. Uh, and so that's what I hope to do. And, and there's a couple truths I want to bring out as to why this chapter was written. And use those two truths to guide our, our time together. 
to not only go into the history of Genesis, but to go to the history up to up to the today. All right. So we're going to be talking a lot of history. Uh, and we're going to look at the significance of the of that history. So y'all just bear with me in this. Um, as you see, the very first, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. When you see that phrase, if you've been a, study, a student of Genesis, if you've been with us at this point, you'll recognize that phrase, these are the generations of, and you'll, you'll see it repeated as well in verse 9, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites. Now, back in that time when the book of Genesis was written, there were no chapter 1, 2, 3, or 36. They didn't have the numbers. That was placed much later in time. Uh, but what the writer did do is he used this phrase, these are the generations of, to use a literary device to divide up the book. So that you know that you're going from one section to another. All right. And so we've seen this about 11 or 12 times now. And this is letting us know uh, that from this point on, he is going to discuss the implications of this family. What was the impact of this family? We've seen that with Jacob, uh, with uh, Isaac. We're about to see it uh, again with Jacob. Uh, in chapter 37, and it's going to follow the history of Joseph and the brothers at that point on. Uh, so it's a transition from Jacob to Joseph, but we look for just a little while at Esau. All right, so let's look at the impact. And so that's going to be one uh, one category that's going to div- divide up what we do. Now we're going to look at the category of Esau and the impact of Esau in chapter 36. We're going to look at the impact of Esau's family throughout history, Okay. And so he lists out all the names. Uh, note something here, verse 6. Um, Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother, Jacob. That's significant. This land of Canaan has been promised to Jacob. It was given to him through the birthright. Esau is not fighting with Jacob. He says, let me just leave. And he does. And so Esau uh, settled in the hill country of Seir. Why did this happen? Because possessions were too great. Uh, the land of the sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. Uh, now we get to the end. Uh, look at verse 43. And he says, These chiefs uh, dwelled according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. In other words, they possessed the land. They, they fought all the enemies. It belongs to them. Verse 1 of chapter 37, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings and the land of Canaan. This was written by Moses, written to the people of Israel as they're leaving. They're not yet going into the promised land. It's just the land of the sojournings. And meanwhile, old brother Esau and his family, they've got their land. All right. So that's the word given to them. Why was this recorded? It was recorded to show not only the impact of Esau's family, but also to show the faithfulness of of God's prophetic word. Okay? Those will be the two uh, thoughts that will guide our discussion. Alright? One, the impact, the influence of Esau's family. Two, Esau's family is a testimony that God's prophetic word is true. Alright? What was God's prophetic word concerning Esau? Well, to discern that, we have to go back a few pages. I warn you, we will be turning a lot in the Bible. If you're not very familiar with the books of the Bible, put your finger in the table of contents. It'll come in handy in this next little uh, 30 minutes that we've got. So let's first start. Uh, we'll go back to chapter 25, Genesis 25. Let's look at the prophetic word 
concerning Esau and what would happen with Esau's line. This prophetic word comes while Esau and Jacob are in their mother's womb. The mother, uh, Rebekah, is dealing with a great bit of labor pains within his within her stomach. And so she asks God within her abdomen, what's going on? God gives her a word in verse 23 of Genesis 25. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. All right. God's prophetic word. A nation will come from Esau. Why is Genesis 36 recorded in such detail? To let the readers know a nation did come from Esau. God's prophetic word is true. Now, we also get a little bit of the relationship that they would be a servant uh, role of Esau's line to Jacob. Now, let's just skip over a couple chapters to uh, chapter 27. This is when Isaac gives the blessing to his sons. He first starts with Jacob uh, because he was deceived, thinking it was Esau. But God works in this blessing and does give a prophetic word concerning Isaac, uh, concerning uh, Jacob and Esau. So chapter 27, verse 27. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. You're going to be in a fertile land. You're going to get blessed this way. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is a promise we see concerning Jacob, concerning Isaac, concerning Abraham. That same cursed be the ones who curse you, blessed is the one who blesses you. It now is on Jacob, and it applies to Esau and how he treats Jacob. Now, a few verses down, verse 39. Isaac is before Esau and gives him his blessing. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. Away from the dew of heaven on high. So Esau, your family, your nation will not be in a fertile land. You'll go away from it. That's what happens in 36 when he leaves the promised land and goes toward the Mount Seir. Then he says, by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. There will be a warrior-like tribe, but yet they will never get the upper hand on uh, Jacob's line. Except for one time, he says, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. All right. Genesis 36 tells us that that's exactly what happened. All right. But let's follow the course of history and see what happens. All right. Jacob... uh, Remember, there goes to Egypt eventually to escape a famine, brings his sons with him. And for 400 years, over 400 years, he dwells, that family dwells in Egypt in slavery. Meanwhile, Esau still lives in the Mount Seir area. Now, if you have a map in your Bible, this may come in handy. I'm going to show you where it's at. If you could imagine where Israel is at, even today where Israel is at, if you just went east of the Dead Sea and a little bit south... That's the region of Edom. That's where Esau dwells in. It's in the southern portion of modern-day Jordan. Okay, If you were to go all the way down south to uh, what's called the Gulf of Aqaba, that would be the border, southern border of Edom. Okay, 
Uh, if you watched Lawrence of Arabia and saw him make the, the march, the, the charge through Arabia, he was trying to get to the Gulf of Aqaba, all right? Uh, so you have your, your kind of, your vision of the nomads, or the vision of the Bedouins, uh, the, the Arabians, all that is in this territory. Now, uh, it is a very mountainous, arid region, okay? Uh, in fact, if you saw the movie The Last Crusade, and there in that, that movie there was a, a scene of a, a mountain-faced treasury building carved into the side of the rock. Beautiful building. In fact, it's one of the, uh, the ancient wonders of the world. That is known as Petra. Uh, that is in uh, the Edomite region. Uh, it also has the name uh, uh, Sila or uh, the mountains of Sierra. Sierra meaning Harry. Remember Esau's name refers to him being Harry as well as Edom. Him having red features as well as selling the birthright for the red portrait. Okay. All right. So bear with me, guys. I'm telling you. <laughs> it's going to get a little bit harder. Uh, so what's the history? All right. They're here. They develop a nation. They develop peoples uh, while Israel is in slavery. In fact, the Bible tells us here in Genesis 36 that there are chieftains, there's rulers, there's kings that come that develop in this nation even before Israel has their kings and uh, and their rulers. And so there is a military might that develops in this way. So when Israel leaves Egypt, goes to the promised land, there are some confrontations that occur between Edom and Israel. In fact, save for Esau's time, The rest of history between Edom and Israel is that of strife, of fighting between the two. And usually Israel is the one that gets the upper hand, just as God said would happen. So we're going to look at this history of strife. Uh, As we come to Exodus chapter 17, you turn to Exodus 17 and you'll find uh, an interesting episode here. Uh, They are trying to get to the promised land, but uh, there was a man by the name of Amalek that develops from this line. In fact, uh, you'll see his name in Genesis 36. In verse 16, you'll find his name Amalek. He has a whole tribe that comes from him called the Amalekites. Amalekites. And in Exodus chapter 17, we find that Amalekites are the ones who are coming up from behind uh, the, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and attacking them from the rear, trying to demolish them. And in 17, uh, verse 8, there is a confrontation that happens at Rephidim. And Moses goes up on the mountain. And as long as he has his rod up, he is uh, he's interceding before God. The people of Israel, Joshua, gained the victory over the Amalekites. But when Moses gets tired and his arms go down, the Malachites prevail and, and win victory over uh, the Israelites. So Aaron comes along with her and they help him hold the rod up and they gain the victory over the Malachites and they run away. Not forgotten, uh, not demolished, but they are defeated for the moment. Uh, so interesting enough. And if you go back to Genesis 36, you see another individual, not only Amalek, but in verse 15, a man by the name of Kenaz. Kenaz, uh, he is one of the chieftains. Uh, they, a family comes, a tribe comes from him called the Kenazites. If you were to read in Joshua 15:17, find one of the heroes of Israel was a man by the name of Caleb, who was a Kenazite. 
So evidently there was some intermarriage that was going on between the Jews and the Edomites in that day. Caleb is one of the faithful that stood with Joshua and led them ultimately into the promised land. Just an interesting note. Now, in Numbers chapter 20, verse 18 and 21, we find another episode. They are not yet in the promised land. They are getting close. And they realize that if we want to go to the promised land, it would be really helpful if we could go up on the east side of the Dead Sea and cross the Jordan River up above. But to do that, they need to go through Edomite lands. They are their brothers. They don't wish to fight with them. And so they try to have an agreement there with them. And so we see this agreement in verse 18 of Numbers chapter 20. They ask, can we go through? Edom said to them, no, you shall not pass through. Lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, Well, we'll go up by the highway. It's called the king's highway. And if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot. Nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom come out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from them. Listen. At this point in history... Esau's line has become a curse to Jacob's line. Remember what God said? What would happen when you become a curse to Jacob's line? You will be cursed. All right? You with me? I don't have to stand, we don't have to stand up and read yet, do we? All right? You with me? Okay, so what happens? Well, we find that history goes on and they get into the promised land. They have their judges and they have uh, their kings. Uh, king Saul is the very first king. And God has not forgotten what the Malachites did. And so let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. God said, you know what? I remember what the Malachites did. I promised them they will be demolished. That will not continue. Their line must end. So he calls the king forward, King Saul. He says in verse 1, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. I have noted what Amalek did. This is one of the sons of Esau. Did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now Go. Strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill the both man and woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telam, 200,000 men on the foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Malachites. And Saul defeated the Malachites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, remember that name, he took Agag, the king of the Malachites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. They disobeyed God. They decided what would be best. They didn't obey God. said, you know, this is the best. We're going to keep this. This is good for our pride. Kept Agag. God sends the prophet Samuel. Samuel finds out about it. He says, you have disobeyed God. The kingdom will be taken away from you, King Saul, and be given to another. And he, then he took Agag and with the sword hacked him to pieces. Gruesome 
But he was obedient to God in this. Why? Because of what the Malachites did and being a curse to Jacob. Now, remember that. Evidently, a line continued of the Amalekite line. All right. We're going to find out about that in just a little bit. Now, uh, the nation of Edom still remains. David comes to the picture. Solomon comes after him. We find recorded, we won't read this, but recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 uh, of battles that occur between Edom and David and Solomon. And David ultimately vanquishes Edom, but they still remain as a nation. Now, hundreds of years later, we've got the demise that's about to take place in Jerusalem. Israel, the northern nation, has been destroyed, but there's a southern branch of Judah... Jerusalem's capital, the king of David, the line of David is its king. But they have rebelled against God. And God told them, you will not survive. The city will be destroyed. And he raises up the Babylonians. And they do exactly that. And so in 586 BC, the Babylonians come and utterly destroy Jerusalem. And they take the people, the best of the land, uh, the best people of the land, and they ship them to Babylon. A remnant remains, but most of the Israelites are taken away into Babylon. Now, Edom is still there at that time. What's Edom doing, this brother nation? Well, according to the book of Obadiah, which is written for them, uh, they stood on the side and cheered on the Babylonians. In fact, perhaps they helped take part in destroying the temple itself. And if any Jews tried to escape the southerly route, they captured them and turned them back into the Babylonians. God saw that. And Obadiah, the shortest book in the Bible in the Old Testament, written for the Edomites to let them know God saw it. And there's going to be a judgment that comes their way. They will be utterly destroyed. This is echoed in Jeremiah as well. We see in prophecies in Ezra and, and, Oba, and Amos chapter 1 verse 11 and Malachi chapter 1 verse uh, 1 through 4 prophecies. And there are other passages that speak uh, to the prophecy, the doom of Edom. Now, uh, one of the things that you'll notice is that a stronghold in Genesis 36, a city is Basra. Basra. When the people left and were taken from Edom to Babylon, evidently there's a group that settled and made a town in modern-day Iraq. If you go on the map today, sure enough, you'll see a town called Basra right there in modern-day Iraq. Uh, Eric, you may have been there while you were serving over in that area. Uh, and so you can see some of the history of that town that perhaps it could very well come from right here Genesis 36. Okay, now, the Edomites assimilated within the culture, and some of them became in power. In fact, the book of Esther is a story of such a case. The book of Esther, Babylonians have left, they've lost the power, Persia come in, and now is reigning. And we find that there is one man by the name of Haman that has come to power, that is sitting uh, as an advisor, as a counselor to the king. We find his story in the book of Esther. Uh, in fact, let's look in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. It's, it's a little bit before Job and Psalms. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things... King Azarias promoted Haman 
the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Do you get his name? He was an Agagite. What is an Agagite? It is the descendants of Agag. Who is Agag? Remember, he was the king in 1 Samuel that was wiped out by Samuel the prophet. Evidently, a line continued on. He is, Haman is an Amalekite of the seed of Esau. Now, what's Haman's role? Well, you remember, he is very proud of his position. In fact, it is a government policy that whenever he comes in, people are to bow down to him. And that works well until he meets a man by the name of Mordecai who does not bow down to him. And this makes him incensed. He finds out, who is this guy? He finds out that he is a Jew and that the Jews do not bow down to men, but they bow down only to God. And so Haman says, you mean he is a Jew? You mean he is the one that slaughtered my family who has tried to kill me? He says, all right, it's time. And so he puts into play a scheme by which on a certain day all the people of the lands of persia which was all the known worlds of that time that all the jews on this day would be slaughtered and all their goods would be taken away and he has the king tricks the king to signing this and sealing this but all unknown to him god is aware of these things and is working through the unlikely hero of a young woman by the name of esther and god Turns back it turns it back on on Haman and finds out that and on that day instead of the Jews getting killed it's Haman who is getting killed and all those who would press the Jews are the ones who then are killed and Haman's sons are taken out. Well, you think that's that's interesting. Well, let me just share a little bit more about history. This is not something that you'll necessarily read uh, in the Bible, but it's hinted at in the Bible. In that time, when the Babylonian captivity was going on, there was a remnant of Edomites that still remained. The Nabataeans came in. They came in and pushed out the Edomites. In fact, that marvelous city of Petra was probably built by the Nabataeans and did beautiful uh, work all throughout the area. The Edomites went westward into the southern portions of Judah, where the Greeks were also around there. And so they get a new name, uh, the Greek version of their names, Edomians. Idiomans. If you're familiar with the book of Matthew and the early history of Jesus Christ, you would come across this name, Idiomian. They were forced to be Jews uh, during the Maccabean revolt, but there was a branch that remains. In fact, Herod the Great, who is declared king of the Jews a little bit before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, this one, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 2, is a Idiomian. He is of the line of Esau, an Edomite. And he had no qualms whatsoever for shedding blood and killed uh, even his, his beloved son of his most favorite wife. I uh, killed him and, and many others to ensure his place. He built a fortress palace in the, uh, the Herodian near Bethlehem. And in fact, that's where scholars recently discovered that's where he's been buried, uh, there in that place. And so he is the king at the time. He is the one that says, you mean there's another king of the Jews born? Let's wipe them out. All the sons are the two in the, in the area of Bethlehem. Let's take them out. And so God rescues Joseph and Mary through a dream and says, flee, get out. And they go out of into Egypt. Well, Herod the Great dies. But he has some sons that are, well, somewhat similar uh, to Herod the Great. 
There's the son Archelaus, Herod Archelaus. He rules for about 10 years. Uh, it is, when Herod the Great dies, God gives word to Joseph and Mary. They come back from Bethlehem up into Israel, thinking to go in Bethlehem. But they find that this man, Archelaus, is ruling over there. And he is much the same as his father, bloodshed after bloodshed. So they do not settle in Bethlehem, but instead go to Maz- Nazareth, where Herod Antipas, also the son of Herod, all these brothers, Herod Antipas, Herod the Philip, all these reigned. Herod Antipas ruled over the Nazareth area. He is the only one that meets Jesus. He is an Edomite. You remember the story when Jesus is being crucified? He is brought before the various rulers, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate sends him to Herod Antipas because he was the ruler of Nazareth. And there in that counter, Herod Antipas mocks Jesus and has his soldiers mock Jesus and hit him and say, please, prophesy to us. He wants to see a miracle. Jesus says not one word to Herod Antipas. And he becomes conspirator with Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus. And from that point on, Pontius Pilate and Herod become great friends. Well, there is also the other son, Herod the Philip. He is of the area of the east of Sea of Galilee. These men eventually die. Their son comes to play, Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa, he is the one that has James killed. He is the one who wants to kill Philip, uh, Peter, but God rescues Peter. Herod Agrippa dies because he thought too much of himself. And the Bible records that passage in Acts, how he dies. And then his son, Herod Agrippa II, comes to power. He is the one that Paul has brought before. And Paul witnesses to Herod Agrippa here. But Herod Agrippa says, would you be that I be a Christian? He does not, as far as we know, follow in Jesus. But it is in Herod Agrippa II, it is in that ram, where... The Roman emperor sends Titus to come, wipes out Jerusalem, kills and burns the city. The Jews are deported throughout the lands, but there is a remnant that always remains in Jerusalem. The Edomites, the Edomians, they too also are deported throughout the lands. It's been said that it's perhaps that they were deported to the Balkans in a country or a place that we know as Bosnia. As Bosnia. And so here they are. There's always a branch of any means that still remain in the history. Now, let's kind of go forward a little bit in history here. You've got all that rulers of that era. You've got the, the Crusaders. You've got the, the um, Muslims, the Turkish, the Ottoman Empire that come. And finally, in 1917, uh, General Appleby comes in with the British Army, and he defeats the, the Ottomans in the Jezreel Valley. He comes into Jerusalem. And he pronounced a leader, a lord, a mufati over Jerusalem by the name of Husseini. He has a son that also becomes uh, mufati over Jerusalem. His name is Hajj al-Husseini. They are from the land, from those that dwell there in this land. Probably a mixture of the Edomite blood, perhaps the Ishmael, the Arabs. Maybe the Turkish, but no doubt there's probably some of the Edomite blood in this line. What's significant about this man? Again, you're not going to read about this in the Bible. This is in the 1920s, 1930s, that he is ruler over this. Who is this Husseini? Well, he is the one that is a conspirator with Hitler. A conspirator with Hitler to get rid of the Jews. He says, you know, there are Jews in this land. 
Yes, there is a Holocaust going on. He finds out about it through him or himself and finds out the numbers of Jews that have been uh, slaughtered at that time at that point, three million. And he says, do not, do not let them come into this nation or this land of Palestine. We don't want them there. This is not a place of refuge. And like their forefathers before them in the Babylonian uh, destruction, they say, you come here, we'll ship you off to German territories. Go to Auschwitz and all the other places. In an agreement with Hiller, there are Muslim troops that come in, commando units that come into Jerusalem from Bosnia. And they come in, and there's pictures. You can see these pictures on the internet. You can see it in the museums of this Hajj al-Husseini inspecting the Bosnian commando troops. It is their job to kill the Jews in the land of Israel. There's some interesting quotes about this man. He said he asked Hitler for an explicit undertaking to allow us to solve the Jewish problem in a manner befitting our national racial aspirations according to the scientific methods innovated by Germany in the handling of its Jews. The answer I got was, the Jews are yours. A quote from his memoirs. He died in 1974. He does a radio program, Radio Berlin. He tells Arabs, rise as one man and fight for your sacred rights. Kill the Jews wherever you find them. This pleases God, history, and religion. This saves your honor. God is with you. Interesting enough, that radio station is now operated by Transworld Radio to share the gospel. But here, at this time, it was a command to slaughter the Jews from this man. Interesting enough, a man comes from him who claims to be his nephew. He has a very long name. Uh, it's got about five or six names written to it. Um, Muhammad Abdul Rayouf Arafat al-Qudra al-Husseini. <laughs> well, you can understand he shortens his name. goes by the name Yasser. Yasser Arafat. He is the one, of course, as you know, that leads the PLO movement until his death. The PLO movement started... By his assumed or claimed uncle who started that PLO movement. It is his uncle, this uh, Hajj al-Husseini. He is the one that puts gold on the Dome of the Rock. He's the one that refurbishes the Al-Asq Mosque there on the Temple Mount. He is the one who calls for the destruction of the Jews. And it is that PLO movement still today... And the Hamas, as it's ruled now, whose primary function is not necessarily the state for the Palestine, for Palestinians, but their primary function is to destroy the Jews from all the way back then. I've just put a, a linking. Did you follow me? To where we exist today between Gaza and what the Palestinians and Jordan call the Western Bank. All the way back to Genesis 36. All right. You remember those prophecies? (laughs) I just shared with you the influence. The impact of Esau's line. But you remember the second main point of this time? Is to share how the prophetic word of God concerning Esau is true. What was the prophetic word? There was be strife between Jacob's line and Esau's line. 
but that they would be subdued, they would be in subjection by Israel's line. There would be a period of time when the yoke would be put aside and that deed indeed happen. But let me share with you some other prophecies. There are much later prophecies uh, outside of Genesis. We'll see these. Uh, let's, let's turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 35. You guys are doing well. I'm proud of you guys. I thought half of you would be out right now. Instead, it's just a quarter of you. <laughs> Ezekiel 35. Verse 5 through 15. Of course, all this chapter is really against Mount Seir, which is Edom. He says, because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of the calamity, the time of the final punishment. And I would say not only did they do it in Babylon's day, they did it in the days of the Holocaust as well. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I'll prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you. Because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation. And I will cut off from it all who come and go. And I will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and in your valleys and all your ravines, those slain with the sword shall fall. And I will make you a perpetual desolation. And your cities shall not be inhabited. Listen. I got to go two years ago. To Petra, the southern portion of Jordan, I walked those rocks and hills, and I did not see a city. There was not a village that I could look to. There were scavengers that were hoping and begging on, on the, the generosity of the tourists there. But it was a desolate land. Why? Verse 9. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine. And we will take possession of them. Which is interesting. If the Palestinians come from, the, from the, the Edomite branch. They're still saying the same thing. Because you said these two nations, these two countries shall be mine. We will take possession of them. Although the Lord was there. Therefore as I live, declares the Lord God. I will dwell, deal with you according to the anger and envy that you showed. Because of your hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I judge you. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel. Saying they are laid desolate. They are given us to devour. And you magnified yourself against me with your mouth. And multiplied your words against me. I heard it. Thus said the Lord God. While the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. As you rejoice over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal, deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all Edom and all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Friends, to this day, the land is very desolate. I cannot point to you in the nations of flags and say there is the Edomite flag. At best is the Palestinians, which is a mixture of various bloods. But there is no Edomite flag that I can point to. Well, why was that done? Why is the fact that there is no Edomite nation today so that you will know that there is a God? Let me take you to another one. The book of Obadiah. A few pages over. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. In fact, let's stop in Amos for a second. Chapter 1, verse, verse 11. 
Amos 1 verse 11. Thus said the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I'll send a fire upon Timon. Timon is one of the names listed in Genesis 36 and becomes a city and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Let's keep on going. The book of Obadiah. You notice so far I've mentioned every time is perpetual enmity between them and Israel. The book of Obadiah written entirely for the Edomite nation and the judgment that's coming. Verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Why not on that day, declare the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and the understanding of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stand aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered its gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you are like one of them. Keeps on going. Until we get to verse 15 in the end where it says there's a day of the Lord coming when the king shall reign and the nation of Edom will be judged as all nations will be judged by this king. And when the last verse of that, of that book, Obadiah says, Saviors shall come to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Friends, that little slot of land about 30 miles wide is not Israel's, it's not the Palestinians, it's God's. It belongs to him and he will give to him. To him whomever he chooses. It is not ours to judge the nations. It is God to judge the nations. Our job is to love the nations. It's God's to determine what will happen to the nations. But the day of the Lord is coming. Let's turn to the last book of the Old Testament. The book of Malachi. It's easy. Find Matthew right before there. Malachi. Chapter 1. And this last word. Before the Old Testament ends. Verse 1 through 4. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau's Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet, I've loved Jacob. But Esau I've hated. Listen, it's not emotional hate. It is the fact that he's chosen Israel over Esau. And the reason being is that Esau has chosen themselves over God and deny time and time again the promises of God to Jacob. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. Listen. And if the Palestinians come from the Israel from Edomites of the old, they say the same thing. We will rebuild our lands, but look what happens. They may build but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let me read that last part. When you see what happens to Edom and you see that God's word is true, what do you say? You say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. How is this great? Listen. Israel as a nation 
Esau as a nation started at the exact same time being born as twins. And I can to this day look at the globe and say, there's Israel. There's Israel. I can go to a place and point out a people and say, that is a Jew. And we recognize who Jews are. They have their own culture and they have their own people and the ethnic group and their own land and their own army and their own government. But I yet to this day can say, there's an Edomite. At best, at best, they're mixed in with a bunch of other peoples and they may bear the name Palestinians. At best. And there will be a day and time where all those who take that banner also will be judged. What does that mean? When God says, those who bless Jacob will be blessed, and those who curse Jacob will be cursed, believe it. Believe it. I've just shared with you the impact of Esau's line throughout history. But more importantly, I hope you see that Esau's family exists to show you the faithfulness of God's word. Why is that important? Because when you read God's word, believe it. If you doubt, all I ask is try to find the Edomites and try to find the Israelites. Why do they exist? Because God has declared it so that you will know that there is a God and that those who will see it and will say that beyond, beyond the borders of Israel, God is great. In other words, he's not just an Israelite God. He is the God of all the nations. And I don't have to wring my fingers when I see the economy going down. I see America going down. It seems like China, India, Russia, and all these nations are coming up. Gas prices are skyrocketing. We're losing our jobs. Oh, what's going to happen? I'm going to say that God is the God of history. He is the one who pulls the string, the past and the present and in the future My trust is not in the economic power of this nation, not in the military might of this nation or any other nation, but it is in the God who says, thus saith the Lord. That's my trust. And listen, let me tell you even more important. When God says to you, you better bless Jacob and don't curse him. Who does Jacob's line stand for? The pinnacle, the gem, all of Jacob's line exists for one person. Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ comes on the scenes and he says, I am the Lord, your God, bow to me. If you do not bow to Jesus as your Lord, your God, you are cursing him. You're making light of Jesus Christ. God says, be warned. If you curse Jesus by your lifestyle, you do not make Jesus your king. I will curse you. Not because I want to, but because I've laid it out and you've chosen the curse path. But when you make Jesus your king and you bow down and say, be My Lord, forgive me of my sins. And Jesus says to you, "Ah, all who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jesus says to you, but as many as to receive them, to them becomes the right to be children of God. When Jesus says to you, do not let your heart be troubled, for I have overcome the world. When Jesus says to you, in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. And I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come again and take you to myself. How do I know that's going to happen? I'm going to say, look at Edom. Can you find it anywhere? No. And in just as that has happened, I will say there is a God and he is great among the borders of Israel. Not even just the borders of this globe, but in the universe and in the world to come. Bless Jesus. Bless Jacob. Do not curse him.
Let's pray. Lord, it is good to remember that history is none other than your story you've written for the express purpose to show to this world that there is a Redeemer who will heal us of our soul sin, our spiritual problems. And Lord, that you will even allow our physical bodies to decay and face harm so that our spiritual life can be renewed as an eagle with you. You will allow the economics of this day, Lord, to gladly be wrecked and destroyed if it brings us spiritually close to you. In this world, sin and persecution must happen. It is Satan's influence. It is the path man chose when they chose a world apart from you. But God, I thank you that in this world of sin and destruction and disease and battles and armies and bloodshed, that though this is the world we chose... Still, you work to prove your glory. Lord, we will forever regret the fact that we chose bloodshed as the path that this world exists. But I thank you that you have redeemed this world. That in the midst of the bloodshed and the disease and hate, you bring out the story of love through Jesus Christ. That you spread your banner over all those who choose it. And your banner over me is love. May your love prevail against the hate of this world by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, may we not doubt your word. But when we see your prophetic word, that we will choose you. And hold on to the eternal riches. That we will not be so caught up in the possessions of this land that we will gladly Make this the land of our sojourner because our possessions are you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.